0: Happy New Year! This is Women Who Travel, a podcast by Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey.
1: We're back!
0: We are. And we are thrilled to be back in the studio after our six-week break. We hope you didn't miss us too much, or actually, we hope you missed us very much, and you've been (laughs) counting down the days. And we're kicking off 2020 with a really exciting lineup. For our first episode of the year, we're talking to photojournalist and Women Who Travel Advisory Board member, Lindsay Adario. The Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer has spent her career traveling to some of the world's most demanding places, creating photographs that capture not only the brutality of war, but the beauty of the people living under it, many of whom are women. Her recent book, Of Love and War, captures the stories of those women and seeks to shine a light on the issues they continue to face around the world. Thank you for joining us, Lindsay. My pleasure. So we kind of just want to kick it off with, tell us a little bit about what your life is like right now. You're heading to JFK pretty much right after this, so travel's not stopping.
2: Yeah, no. Um, Most of my year is spent on the road. I'd say probably anywhere from 15 to 20 days a month. uh, I'm traveling somewhere, whether it's from London to somewhere in Africa or the Middle East or Afghanistan or in the U.S. So it really, I don't exclusively cover war. I cover also stories, uh, humanitarian stories and stories about women and stories really that have sort of justice or uh, humanity that as a central point.
1: So this is our very first episode of our new monthly How I Became series. Why don't you start by telling us about your family? Did you travel a lot growing up? How did that inform the early assignments that you had? I had a pretty
2: crazy family life growing up. I mean, I was raised uh, by hairdressers. My mother and father were both hairdressers, and I grew up in Westport, Connecticut, so not too far from here. And... We traveled a lot as a family. We went to uh, the Caribbean and Jamaica and Bermuda and sort of often to warm places. Uh, we also skied often in the winter. And nothing very exotic, but we certainly traveled a fair amount. We are four sisters, so it was a family of six. So that's a pretty big family to travel around with. And when I was eight, uh, my dad left my mother for Bruce, uh, his now husband. They've been together for 35 years. So since I was eight, you can do the math. I'm 46. (laughs) And, um, And they opened their own salon. But my household growing up was always really creative, really fun, really an emphasis on sort of respecting people for who they are and being non-judgmental and so that sort of prepared me for a life of travel and that helped me give me the tools to sort of meet people around the world and to respect their culture and to really embrace difference. I remember when we spoke on the phone about a month ago we talked
0: a little bit about how sort of before you picked up a camera you already knew that you wanted to travel and see the world what were those early experiences like when did you kind of
2: step out onto your own So, uh, when I was about 12 or 13, my dad gave me my first camera, and I taught myself how to photograph. And um, I guess I started photographing more when I moved abroad. So I did my junior year abroad in Italy, in Bologna and when I went there I really felt more free to photograph on the streets and I guess that was because of anonymity and I I really felt like I can go around and 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 take pictures on the street in a way that I didn't really feel comfortable in the US and then I went back to University of Wisconsin where I studied finished my final year my senior year and then I moved to Argentina so I went there to learn Spanish and to again travel around and I ended up traveling all throughout South America uh, using sort of my camera as, as an excuse to go places, to explore, to meet people, and that was probably a real turning point in my life. I was about 21. Um, I felt more confident with the camera. I felt more confident traveling. You know, it's a little scary as a young woman to just pick up and move to Argentina and then to go to Chile and Peru and Bolivia and all of these places. I went on my own, and and it was uh, intimidating, but I also felt like I was learning so much, and it was so exciting that um, I I just went for it. What were those early photographs like?
0: What did you? Really bad.
2: (laughs) 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 They were horrible. I mean. I think they were, you know, I was sort of learning people's boundaries, and so I was scared to get too close to anyone, and of course, there's sort of the famous, like Robert Kappa saying that if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough, and I think he was talking about war, but I think that really pertains to most things, you know. I think as a photographer, you want to feel like you know the subject, and, and sort of so does the viewer, and so at that point, I was really sort of tentative about taking pictures, and And, um, you know, that's changed a lot. But I think I was learning. I was learning how to read light. I was learning how to use light. I was learning, you know, really everything. And so they were pretty average. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I kept at it.
1: What was the focus or the subjects if you look back at a lot of those photos? Are they similar to what you're photographing now?
2: It was just. It was travel. I mean, very sort of light, you know, yeah. Travel, kids, you know, things that felt kind of easy to approach.
1: When you transitioned to then photographing professionally, what was that change like and what kind of brought about the more photojournalism aspect? I mean, it took a while
2: because when I I moved to Argentina, one of the first things I did was go into the newspaper there. And I don't know what inspired me to think that I merited a job at the newspaper at that point, but I went in and I basically just begged them for a job. And so that entire sort of eight months, nine months that I was in Argentina, I was shooting every day. And I think just by virtue of of photographing every day, you become a better photographer. You learn how to see better. You learn how to sort of curate what's in your viewfinder better. And I think for me, I didn't transition right away to professional, but I kind of at least in my mind, I knew that's where I wanted to go. And that's what I wanted to be was a photojournalist. And then it wasn't until I moved back to New York. And in the 90s, 97, 98, 99, I was freelancing for the Associated Press in New York. And basically, every single day, I would I would wait for my pager. I mean, this is the days of pager. So I'm really dating myself. But I would wait for like my cell phone and pager to ring and just shoot all the time time in New York. And and that's sort of, I guess, in the 90s, and the late 90s is when I really became like a professional photographer.
1: Did you ever, when you were working for that Argentinian newspaper, traveling around South America, think, you know, so many years from now, I'm going to be traveling around the Middle East instead? Um, I didn't know where I'd end up
2: traveling. I certainly didn't I wasn't sure I'd ever make it. I wasn't sure I'd ever get to the point where I didn't have to also work as a waitress or I didn't have to also sort of teach English as a second language or, you know, I think for me, it was really about how can I get to the point in my life where all I'm doing is photographing. And was, I'm just going
0: to hammer home this topic a bit more, but when you envisioned always having photographing in your life, were you also envisioning always having travel in your life? Yes. Did the two feel bound to each other?
2: Yes, they did. And they still do. I mean, even when I moved back to New York in the in the 90s, uh, every time I had some money saved, I would work toward a trip. And I would go to Cuba. For example, in 1997, I went to Cuba. I went to Havana. And I spent a month there living with a family and traveling around and, and really getting a feel for what Cuba was like. Because at that point, it was this forbidden country for an American. and. And that was interesting to me. I mean, for me, it's really always been about exploring the unknown or exploring something that's foreign to me, learning about it, and that is done through travel. And so for me, it's always been uh, tied into my photography.
0: You you, You know, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how many of your subjects are women, and you really carved out a space for yourself quite early on in your career, photographing women and focusing on their stories. How did you end up on that trajectory? Was it a conscious thing or was it that being a woman behind that camera gave you access to spaces that maybe some of the other photographers weren't getting who were male?
2: It was a combination. So I think when I was working in very conservative Muslim countries like in Afghanistan, Pakistan, as a woman I had access to those women. I had access um, and better access. It was just more comfortable to be in spaces occupied by women and, and they allowed me to photograph. And it was also a world that I felt people didn't really have access to. So I was bringing something new, I was bringing sort of a new perspective on what women's lives were like at home uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so that was really interesting for me. I think also I was raised in a very sort of female-centric family. You know, I have three older sisters, my mother. You know, I had two very strong Italian-American grandmothers. Uh, one is still alive. She's 106. And I think, you know, for me, women have always sort of dominated my life. And so I've always been drawn to photographing women.
1: I would highly suggest going to Lindsay's Instagram to find video <laughs> of her grandmother who looks like the absolute I, sweetest, shiniest <laughs> yeah. human. I mean, she still
2: lives at home. I mean, it's incredible.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, how do you think... The themes of what you've covered have developed and changed over time as you have grown and matured. Um, I think the
2: themes are roughly the same. I think the themes are really what we talked about before, uh, human rights issues, women's issues, humanitarian, um, really issues about human nature and what makes us, you know, I like to bring humanity to topics that are tough because I want people to be able to enter them and penetrate them. And so I think those have been consistent topics throughout my career, I've traveled through over 70, 75 countries at this point in my life. And I I think that what I find is that those topics really bind us together. And also, we're really similar, you know, around the world. What I find is that we as human beings are really similar, despite the cultural differences, despite the differences, the sort of very apparent differences in the way we live our lives. I think at heart, you know, our natures are often very similar.
0: You know, I think we've made some progress, but often having a light shone on women's stories and convincing male-dominated newsrooms to publish those stories can be a massive challenge. Um, How did you figure out the confidence in your work and yourself to push back against those editors when they said that, you know, people weren't interested in a story or it wasn't right for that publication? How did you manage not to compromise
2: You know, I've always been really driven and really sort of tenacious. And I just am not a person to give up easily, you know. And I think if I believe in something, I'll keep pushing. And if someone closes the door, I'll go to another door and then another door and another door. And I I just don't really give up. And I think, you know, a really good example is that I was working in Afghanistan under the Taliban. So before September 11th, and I made three trips there. And I felt like I had very exclusive material because very few journalists actually were able to get into Afghanistan when it was under Taliban rule and then it was illegal to photograph people and I had all of these pictures and, you know, they weren't great because I was very, very young, but they were still, you know, they provided a lot of information about what life was like under the Taliban and no one was interested. You know, the Los Angeles Times, I think, published a few But overall, it was really tough to get anything published until September 11th. And then suddenly those pictures were sort of very much in demand because everyone wanted to know what life had been like under the Taliban. And so, you know, sometimes it's a matter of timing and sometimes it's just a matter of for me believing in what I think is an interesting issue and following through with it and not caring whether people care or not, you know, just doing it because I believe in it.
1: One series that I've found really interesting to see through your lens is all of the maternal mortality issues that you've brought up in your work. Kind of what inspired that path for you? Sure. So
2: that um, I started photographing maternal mortality because in 2009 I won a MacArthur Fellowship. And it was the first time in my career that I was ever sort of handed a, a salary for Five years without any strings attached, and so I thought, you know, this is a dream for any artist, and and what I wanted to have a body of work that actually, you know, that was comprehensive in scope, and also that had that could teach people. And so for me, I started researching ideas, and I was looking at stories, and you know, I thought it would be a woman's story because I just felt like they were often undercovered, and and then I came upon maternal health and maternal mortality, and at that point, over five. 500,000 women were dying every year in childbirth, and I started looking into it more, and as there were, you know, I think at that point over 90% of the deaths were preventable, so it was just extraordinary. You know, this was a topic that just needed more coverage, and so I started then. Um, I started making trips to Afghanistan and Sierra Leone and have since sort of worked in India and in the United States and in uh, Somaliland and sort of really have taken that work around the world um,
0: talking about whether people care about an issue and about women's issues and that that particular subject was very undercovered. do you think people care more now than they did kind of 20 years ago or do you think it's the same and maybe we're just louder about it
2: I think it's probably the same and there's social media and we you know it's women share stories often about women um, there are certain times where there's more momentum toward women's stories with the Me Too movement, you know, when there, there are topics about equal payment for women. You know, there are topics where, you know, suddenly everyone focuses on women and women's rights and women's issues. But I think overall, you know, I, maybe it's just social media that actually gives us more of a forum to talk about those issues.
1: You recently wrote a piece for the New York Times that came out in December about photographing Paralympic athlete Marie Kay Vervoort as she prepared to die by choice and the emotional toll that covering that type of issue can take on you. How have you learned to manage the grueling nature of what you do? Sure.
2: Um, you know, It's a common question that I get is sort of how do I deal with the trauma of what I shoot? And I think the only thing that I can say is that I have to step back a little bit and do some self-care after an assignment like that. I mean, I think the story of Marike, um, it was a story I worked on for almost three years. I went to see her very often because I'd take the Eurostar from London to Brussels. Um, She became a very dear friend and and it's it's extremely hard to watch someone end their life by choice Especially because she was totally of sound mind Um, You know, she lived with excruciating pain in her body and her muscles and she had a degenerative muscular disease But her mind was there and so that's very very tough to see and also to watch her parents go through such excruciating pain And her sister and I think, you know I after completing a story like that. The last sort of five weeks have really just been about um, making sure the edit was good and the captions were right and the information was right and the p- permissions were in place, but also about sort of taking care of my own soul. And I think I have two children and, and sometimes it's easy to just sort of, you know, bury myself in my family life because that's a place where it gives me sort of nourishment, you know. And I feel like after a story like that, I need to feel again like, uh, like I'm a human being again. And so the way that I can do that is to just sort of step back you know, be with my family, exercise, eat good food, take care of myself. And so really that's what the last sort of five weeks have been about.
1: Does travel ever personal travel, not for work, ever play a role in that process and physically getting away from the subject?
2: So I think when I can and, you know, I have one child who's in school, so it's hard to sort of pull him out. And obviously, because I live on the road, I live, you know, a life of, of extreme travel and a lot of travel. I need to be with my family when I'm when I'm not shooting. But for me, an ideal way to sort of replenish myself would be to go to the beach. You know, I love being by the sea. I love, you know, in April, we went to Mexico. And I I always just love kind of being by the ocean. Is it a sort
1: of like do nothing vacation? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a an active vacation. <laughs> I don't like go climb a mountain or go camping because I do that stuff for work. So so no, I wanna like lie on the beach and do nothing. <laughs> I wanna do that too, and I'm not doing yeah. that <laughs> doing your job.
0: You know, you have these periods of self care after you've worked on a you know, a very emotionally affecting story and there are many of them within your sort of entire portfolio how long until you sort of feel ready to throw yourself kind of back into the throes of that work again or is it just sort of the next story comes along when you least expect it?
2: I mean you never, I never know I mean my schedule is so unpredictable and I really don't know where I'm going to be from one month to the next so if I have an opportunity if I have a window where I don't have assignments or there's no story that I'm interested in doing at that moment, I then retreat and I take care of myself because I know that you know the next month can mean back to back travel and so for me it's really about you know some stories require me to step back long Some I don't really need time I even even though it's a super intense story I feel fine, and so I think it's it's really a story You know it's hard to say because every story is so different
1: when you think back to your early 20s and your early assignments Kind of what is the difference between what you decide is worth your time and effort and interest now versus what kind of you took into account you know, obviously you have less control when you're starting out in your career, but things that you were more interested in then, like what's the difference between what you take and what you say no on?
2: I mean, I think when I first started out, I never said no. I mean, I think for the first sort of 15 years of my career, I just said yes to every single assignment because I was so desperate to become a photographer and I just wanted to be on assignment for the New York Times or National Geographic or Time or whoever would assign me. And so, you know, for me, it was really about just like getting out there and saying yes. you know. Now Now I'm much more judicious, you know, I really say like, is this worth me a risking my life? Is this worth me leaving my family for a month? Is this worth, you know, we don't get paid a lot, you know, so it's also another thing like I'm 46. And when I was 21, the money that we received went a lot further, you know, now it's tough. I mean, it's I I don't really make much money. And the day rates certainly haven't gone up by very much. So I think you have to really you know for me I have to be I have to really care about a story to
1: go and do it I know that um, I saw you speak at the Times a couple months ago and one of the things you brought up was that you kept your pregnancy to yourself Mm -hmm. uh, for quite a long time because you wanted to be you and your husband wanted to be in charge of the things that you went on Mm -hmm. um, because you were perfectly cleared by your doctor to do so what was the thought process behind that and And would you do it again?
2: Well, I think basically um, whether or not people admit it, uh, there's a lot of sexism and there's a lot of, you know, the minute any of my editors found out that I was pregnant, I just assumed they would start making decisions for me as to what I would be capable of shooting uh, and places I'd be able to travel to. And I think, you know first of all, one thing that we have to recognize is every woman's body is very different. Everyone's pregnancy is very different. The risks are different. Um, You know, and I was very lucky to have a great pregnancy. I was at the gym every day. I traveled. I consistently traveled until I was 28 weeks pregnant and I felt great. Um, But I did not feel like I needed to share my pregnancy with my editors because I felt fine. And, And so I didn't until I was about six months pregnant. Now, I wasn't covering combat, I mean, I was covering, a lot of times, I was covering women's stories, so half the co- women I was covering were pregnant. So it was like, you know, why do I go? need, why do I need to go tell my editors in New York? Uh, because they're not asking me if the women I'm covering are pregnant. <laughs> so I think, you know, really it's a personal decision, and it was something I discussed with my husband, and that's how I felt comfortable going about it. And then at a certain point, of course, I was almost six months pregnant, and I remember I was doing a road trip um, for Time magazine. We were traveling across the United States Um, it was 2011 and sort of there's that time in your pregnancy where your stomach just pops you know and I had been traveling with Joe Klein um, for Time Magazine and and (laughs) Within the span of like two weeks, I think I went up like an entire pant size and I was like, oh my God, he's going to think I'm like binge eating (laughs) at night or like, you know, so like I hadn't said anything about being pregnant and he was eating breakfast one morning in this hotel. We were in like some, you know, like roadside hotel and I went downstairs and I was like, morning, Joe. He was like good morning Lindsay and I was like uh I'm almost six months pregnant and he was like what (laughs) and I was like I just didn't want you to think that I was just like getting really fat on this assignment and like I just
1: over the two weeks yeah and he was
2: like uh you're crazy (laughs) I was
1: like but I also just didn't want my editors to not assign me and be like so it's
2: very funny but yeah
0: once the news was out in the open, how did your editors respond?
2: Well, my New York Times editor at the time was amazing. Um, he was like, "You, I will keep giving you assignments until you don't want to take them anymore. And so he actually was great. Um, actually, everyone was great, you know, but... It's easy to be great when you're already six months, you know, I think, I don't know. I think people automatically feel very protective and feel ownership of pregnant women. Like they can decide what's best for them. And so that's obviously something that everyone will have an opinion on. But that's just my experience. Well,
0: then it sort of goes to people underestimating women's ability to make their own decisions.
2: Yes. And, and it's to like, trust their instincts. Exactly. And so that's supremely frustrating. (laughs) Would I do it again? No, I mean, I'm 46. And so, yeah, I mean, we actually just had another baby, but we had a surrogate because I have back problems, which you can see right now because my back's out. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we have a seven month old.
0: You know, obviously when you're in kind of very unfamiliar places um, and often sometimes dangerous when you're young, you often just do stupid things without thinking about it and like most of the time you're lucky enough that you're fine. Totally. Um, How has that changed over time, especially now that you have a family and you have more to think about than just yourself?
2: Yeah. Um, It's changed a lot. It's not only necessarily because I have a family. It's because I've been kidnapped twice. I've been shot at, ambushed, thrown out of a car on a highway in Pakistan. I've been, you know, I've lost a lot of friends. I've, you know, I've been through a lot. And so I think, you know, yes, in my 20s I felt totally invincible and I could do anything and go anywhere. And, you know, I was really lucky. And, And sort of that luck runs out at some point. And it ran out not only for me but for, like, my greater community of friends. And so I think I am a lot more cautious now. Um, I'm still covering more, but I'm, I, the process of sort of, you know, the risks I will take and mapping out sort of what I'll do and how to avoid risk is much more tedious and much more extensive than it was. You mentioned
0: sort of that community of other journalists and, you know, from, kind of what I know of that world and um, especially kind of foreign correspondence and everything. It's a very tight knit community um, because there are so many shared experiences that you just can't, people back home can't really necessarily relate to. How important has that been and continues to be as your career progresses?
2: Um, it's, It's really important. I mean, I think even though that community, many people have sort of stopped covering war and none of us are really covering breaking news anymore. And there was always sort of the same gaggle of photographers. We went from Iraq to Afghanistan to, you know. But I think we will always be bound by the experiences that we've shared. And so I think that, you know, when I come to New York for a more extended period of time, I see them, ironically, many of them and many of us are all having children now. And so rather than talking about war, we talk about like, what stroller do you use? (laughs) These are like with like hardened war correspondence and it's very (laughs) funny. So I think, you know, I think, um, you know, life goes on, we got, you know, we're getting older and, and our experiences. Um, have sort of maybe helped us gravitate toward this next stage in life.
0: Um, kind of looking to the future. Uh, what do you want to photograph that you haven't photographed yet, or who? I don't. That's a tough question.
2: Um, I can't really say right now. I think that there are stories um, that I want to go more in depth. On many stories in America, actually. I feel like the U.S. is a fascinating place right now. And I also feel like a lot of the topics that I've been covering overseas are happening right here at home. And so it's interesting for me, who's lived abroad for 20 years, to come back and see sort of the U.S. with fresh eyes. And so maybe, you know, covering more stories in the U.S.?
0: When you um, mention topics that you've covered abroad that are happening here, can you kind of elaborate a little further?
2: Sure. Uh, Refugees, people who are displaced, immigration, uh, race issues, uh, poverty issues, um, drug addiction, prison system. Um, So, yeah, I think all these topics are right here at home as well.
1: Um I am going to ask you a question that kind of harkens back to what we were talking about at the beginning when you were saying you kind of harassed the newspaper in Argentina to give you a job and you and you weren't sure if you were good enough to I harassed everyone that, throughout yeah. my career <laughs> I
2: basically was like would never take note for an answer
1: but you weren't sure if you were going to make it mm-hmm. you know in the long term as a photojournalist you know now that you Kind of see your life and your work and your two books and and all of these things that you've done kind of laid out in front of you. Um, what would you want to tell her, the 21 year old you, about what's in store and what she should be doing? I mean that it never
2: gets easier. You know, you can never be complacent. You can never be proud of what you've done. I think you have to just keep pushing forward. Um, always treat people with respect and respect their cultural differences Um, and, you know, never take anything for granted. I think this is uh a... it's such a privilege to live this life of travel and to live this life of exploring the world with a camera. I mean, I can't, if anyone had told me at 21 I would be paid, I would make a living traveling around with a camera. I would never have believed them. And I think it's a real honor and privilege to have that as my profession in my life. And I think it's just important to never take that for granted.
1: Does that same kind of um, imposter syndrome, so to speak, kind of like course through you today, or is it something that you feel like you have a handle on?
2: I mean, I'm pretty, like, I I never feel sort of like, oh, I can just rest on my laurels. Like, I'm very, very driven all the time. I'm constantly researching, you know, new ideas, thinking about what I can do next, where I want to be, sort of, you know, I think it's important. You know, for me, I also feel like, you know, this is a profession that I can only do for I don't know. I mean, I don't know how long my body will hold up, you know, doing these tough, they're very physically uh, and emotionally tough assignments. So so long as I can do them, I want to do them.
1: And what does 2020 have in store for you? I have no idea. I never know.
2: <laughs> I'll be working on another book, but um, that's all. That'll just be sort of one, one part of what I'm doing.
1: Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to follow you on the internet, where can they find your work? I have
2: a website. It's wwwl um, I have Instagram, which is also my name, Lindsay Adario. Uh, same spelling. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter
1: amazing i'm at oh hey there mayor i'm at La Lehana. if you want to keep up with women who travel which means new meetups new trips new stories stories about Lindsay, stories not about Lindsay, um on cntraveler.com just make sure to sign up for our newsletter it is the best way to keep track of everything that we're doing and we will link uh, the way to sign up in the show notes we are super excited for what we have coming down the pipeline in 2020 and we will talk to you next week